we wanted to do research. Uh, I don't mean research in a technical sense, but research where you go out into the world and find out something you don't know. And and the reason is you actually need stakes to get away from the stereotypes. So if your expertise is something from you've learned from movies, then you tend to copy what's in movies, which makes everything derivative. So for us, it was to say, well, we need to go out in the world and discover this, that which is not obvious. I'm Mary Long, and that's Ed Catmull, co-founder of Pixar and a pioneer in both computer animation and in storytelling. Ricky Mulvey caught up with Catmull to discuss AI's impact on the animation industry, stakes in storytelling, and why imagining oneself riding bareback on a herd of wild horses can help in dealing with unpredictable talents. Ed, I kind of want to start at a uh, a jumping off place, which is Pixar characters are often admired for their curiosity. I know you're you have to be a curious person as you, you uh, have developed software and, and stories. So right now, what what are some things you're curious about? Well, the uh, there there are several things I'm curious about. There are actually too many things now. Um, but one of them is just looking back at uh, the implications of the rate of change. And over the my entire history, uh, it's been fairly clear that the underlying change in the speed of, and cost of computing was at an exponential rate. About, uh, I think it's a practical matter, like 30% per year of improvement. I think the actual uh, numbers, it isn't, forget transistor count, it's really the, the, the effectiveness of the chips and the cost is probably more like 20, 25% annual increase over a 50 year period. Now, having said that, the companies along the way, like the workstation companies and the other companies were in the business of building on this exponential change. And yet they didn't see the implications of it. This, it, for me, was mind blowing. What in the world was going on? This is separate from the cultural questions, how you solve the technical problems. It's just looking at the industry as a whole that I was in the midst of, of thinking, why is it that people weren't seeing this? And now I'm, I'm, I've got more time is to talk with some of the people involved and to find that actually a lot of the engineers did know this, but the leaders and managers of the company in thinking about management and growth and the, the pressures on them, uh, were not listening to people, uh, to, or to, their even, to their own people and their engineers. One of the results is None of the workstation companies have survived until today. Now, for me, this is curious. So now I'm going back and looking at it and I'm working with a friend at, at, uh, at uh, MIT Sloan is to think, what is it that's going on? 
uh, why are people missing something which is so clear and instead reacting when something actually becomes so big it hits them in the face where they could have prepared ahead of time? What are the, the implications? So in, in the cost of computer power declining, computer and uh, in, in the rate of change in the amount of computer po- computing power that people get going up, what are the implications that you and the engineers were worried about that the, that the leaders were not? Well, if if you can actually clearly see that, that something is going to change by more than an order of magnitude or some major component of your business is going to change, it's going to have an impact. And that impact it means that you have to think out 5, 10, 15 years and you really have to put some attention on it. And most industries didn't even have anybody inside who could see that to, and if they did, they typically ignored them. So it was this, this, uh, uh, an ongoing problem. Uh, I, I think in the case of what we're seeing now with uh, an even faster exponential growth rate with, uh, um, machine learning, uh, the, the, the growth rate, the annual growth rate of processing power and cost for uh, the GPUs is even greater than it was for CPUs and has been for several years. So we're now seeing the consequences of that um, and the, those consequences regarding machine learning are, are they're now very obvious but we don't typically have people in companies that can even think about the implications of the change. I'm sure you also have thoughts on the effects of, of AI on the animation business. And I, I hope you will forgive me for reading a, a take from, from Jeffrey Katzenberg about this. This has made some news. He said, quote, at the um, Bloomberg New Economy Summit, in the good old days when I made an animated movie, it took 500 artists five years to make a world-class animated movie. I don't think it will take 10% of that. Literally, I don't think it will take 10% of that three years from now, end quote. I think in terms of, let's say, making an animated film, uh, the number of people who knew how to use the tools for doing 3D animation was very small to begin with. Um, So as Pixar started, we had to train people, and we wanted people who were trained as artists with observational skills we didn't actually care whether or not they knew how to use the tools because we trained them to use the tools. They weren't the schools or the skills that we needed. Now, as we, uh, as we grew, uh, we were, we tried to be very careful. And this is starting back at Lucasfilm is to understand that this was not a, about technology. It was about telling stories. So if we had a technological tour de force, then we would have failed. But if we got the story right, we would succeed. So there is that issue of what what is the optimal group for creating something which is uh, thoughtful and uh, able to, to make a good story, but use the technology in the process of doing it. Uh, now that the number of people that 
that we would take to make films um, is, I'm going to say roughly on the order of 300 people dedicated to it near the tail end. It's a small group to begin with, and then it's only when you figure out what it is that you add a lot of skilled people to do it. But the real question for us was, from a creative point of view, what's an optimal number of people? So as the technology has gotten a lot less expensive uh, and uh, the uh, in all different fronts, the tools, uh, also the, the, the number of people trained to use them is significantly more than it was before, and they're very good. So that's a different kind of world that we're now in today. So that the barrier to entry, if you if you will, to make anything is actually very low. So if you want to produce something which is B or or C level, uh, it doesn't take very much to do it. Uh, it's cheaper to do typically a three D uh, film for young children on Saturday morning than it is by hand. All right, so the economics uh, have changed and are continuing to change. Uh, and generative AI is clearly going to continue to change that. So that's the course that we're on. And you can't ignore that that's the, the, the process that's going on any more than the workstation companies should have ignored what was happening to the the CPUs underneath them at their peril. So, but that doesn't answer the question that if you want a rich, full film, what's the optimal number of people? And I think that's the better question that you want to ask for okay. a really good film. But the answer is, what would it take to produce a C-level film? Is The answer is it's going to be pretty cheap like very cheap. So a, a, a brilliant person or two uh, using uh, generative AI could do something which is great, which is what happens with arts. And I was just a, a single person will do something. But I think if you've got a very rich film, then uh, we've got contributions to a fair number of people. Uh, I'd always estimated and it's just just a gut feeling that because you've got uh, looks and appearances, but you're also trying to draw in ideas from a number of people, that an optim- op- optimal number is probably around 100. That um, when you get larger than that, it's very difficult to change course because you've got, it, you know, it gets very complicated. And if it gets too small, in general, not always, then you don't have as much richness and depth that you'd like. Yeah, I think, and, and please correct me, we may be maybe a few years away from someone who can maybe draw a little bit and use natural language commands to make, a, make their own a- animated movie. Well, I think... Um, uh, I, I don't think that's even far away uh, in order to be able to do something. Uh, I mean, the answer is yes, probably a few years. But uh, 
you can easily imagine that. But in order to do that, it's you're describing something, and with generative AI, it's it's creating the dialogue and it's creating the imagery. But you could draw a comparison. Uh, if you look back at six years ago at the Scooby Doo uh, cartoons, yep. Which uh, I watched for professional reasons, not because I enjoyed them, but I was more fascinated by the fact that there were only three plots, or four plots. There was the one that took place in the Haunted Mansion. Um, there was the one that took place in the mountains with the Yeti. Um, uh, there was one in the cave. I forget where the other one was. Um, so... The uh, uh, the settings were very repetitive with each other, and the the format was fairly easy. So the cost of writing them was actually very simple, and it was very low cost. But it was also only watchable by children. <laughs> uh, so, and and uh, I sometimes listened. Because my, my wife will listen to uh, uh, series uh, on uh, her uh, iPad. I'm in, in the other room. I'm just hearing the voice, but I'm listening to how are these people speaking? And I think, well, actually, all of this sounds uh, not very good, not very realistic. I think when you actually watch it with the visuals, it's more compelling because you have something with the actors. But it all sounds like something which you really could generate because there's nothing particularly interesting that I find just in listening to them. So another question is, will that be generated? And it can easily be generated? And the answer is yes. Uh, and then every once in a while you'll see something which was uh, really uh, refreshing a new and real uh, even though it's a fantasy in in uh, in, in many senses, um, which is what you know art does and what art is, but it would not have been generated. Uh, so we will be able to fill the air with stuff which uh, is pre-derivative. How far away is that? I don't think it's terribly far away, and it will happen. I want to go to Creativity Inc. for a little bit because one one part of it that I found uh, useful for me is especially the the section on on mental models and how we use them whether or not we're, we're cognizant of them and how especially creative people use um, use mental models to to sort of uh, stay centered. One example is is a producer from from Pixar, John Walker. Who imagined balancing an upside down pyramid on his on his fingertip? You wrote that when you were at Lucasfilm, your model was riding bareback on a herd of wild horses. Why was that a useful model during your time at Lucasfilm? Well, I for me it was uh, accepting that. Uh, in order for us to move forward, we had to have these sort of unpredictable talents around. 
and uh, and there was something about just saying, oh, okay, I'm not really totally in charge of this group, and, and nominally I'm the leader of of it, but if I thought I was trying to control what the people were doing or where they were going even, I would actually slow things down. So it was to think of it in terms of like, this is a wild ride. And it was. So it's for, for me, a lot of times, it's an acceptance of the nature of the problem. And uh, just accepting the unpredictability of it, I've always felt to be a useful tool to have, as well as I found it was useful to know that I was frequently wrong. Pixar was famous for essentially where story advanced the technology and technology would advance the story. Well, there's there's a million examples. One would be figuring out subdivision in a bug's life to make essentially triangles very, very small. So you have a, a smooth surfaces appeared on the insects. And while, while we know the times that it worked, um, were there ever times where maybe you're in a um, story trust meeting where y- you have to stop an idea because you're like, this is wonderful, but this this is not technically possible at this moment. I, I, I think of, as you referenced James Cameron, he had to delay Avatar um, for, for more than a decade because he was like, the tech's just not there yet. Well, in the, uh, for the first, well, obviously for Toy Story, essentially these are characters that are made out of plastic. The humans didn't look realistic. Um, we had, uh, the complexity was were things that we'd worked out, like the leaves and the trees with massive amounts of, of stuff. But essentially, we're dealing with flat surfaces. The next film was Bugs Life, where we dealt with uh, more characters. But even at that time, the sheer number of ants had the people working on it saying, ah, we don't think we can do that many. So it was like a question whether or not we could even do it but the technology represented limits and so we were designing around what we knew was was possible it also had uneven terrain now it didn't take long before we reached the point where um that uh that really wasn't a major limitation that is the rate of improvement in the technology became then for the next few years of which are the things that are going to be the new problems that we should try to solve. And so we'd focus on that. Um, and then ultimately reached the point where the technology became accessible enough that it almost, it, I mean, for me, in some fellows, it became a, a problem because it was, it was, in excess. So, um, the, w- one of the difficulties with making a film is that working out the story is really hard. But going in the screening room and looking at all the fun visuals is just that. It's fun. So, it then becomes a distraction from the story. And you've seen movies, as I've seen movies, where they look great, and the story suck. So why aren't they spending more time on the story and less time on the, the visuals? 
just kind of getting seduced in the candy store because you know you, you don't want to do your homework. So we th- that's the range you went over from it. That's our limitation to actually we can do anything we want and it gets in the way because we're spending time doing anything we want rather than what should be done. I think one thing Pixar also really understands is setting stakes in storytelling. And I think that's what maybe a lot of the visual feasts that you've described missed. Um, I, I struggle with it with a lot of, um, I, I see I, I see executives wanting optionality in a story. And I worry that comes to pass with, with multiversal storytelling. How did you... Why I guess what was what was maybe not the magic, but how did you think about setting stakes in a story uh, at Pixar? Well, the the reason why I think that there's a uh, there's like there's a a better number. It's not like there is the actual number, but you want several people involved with it. But it isn't just you got several people involved. But for us, we wanted to do research. Uh, I don't mean research in a technical sense, but research where you go out into the world and find out something you don't know. And and the reason is you actually need stakes to get away from the stereotypes. So if your expertise is something from you've learned from movies, then you tend to copy what's in movies, which makes everything derivative. So for us, it was to say, well, we need to go out in the world and discover this, that which is not obvious. So as, as an example, although there are several of them, but one of them is Ratatouille, which we did several years ago. Um, the, the premise was a hard one, and it's important for us to take on hard premises. That is, these are ideas that would not pass the elevator test because you can't describe quickly why this is a good idea. So it's a challenge. Then you go out. You have to go out and not only solve this challenge. You have to find out things that the audience wouldn't know. So in the case of Ratatouille, uh, we basically have typically uh, cooking in our home, so we know what it means to cook. So let's cook. We see cooking in restaurants. We can watch Cooking Channel, but Basically, almost none of us have been inside of a professional high-end kitchen. What is that really like? So in this case, the the research, and some research isn't as nice, but you go into high-end restaurants, you get to know them, and in, in the case of the French Laundry, for instance, they went in and they worked in the kitchen. So Thomas Keller had the, the people in there, in the kitchen, and then they, but they went to France to the, the high-end restaurants and they got to know who are these people, what are they thinking, how are they trained, and then how do you quickly describe that in a film? And the thing about this is the audience doesn't know whether or not it's true, but they sense that it is. And that's what you're trying to capture is something that they don't know, but you sense is true. So that's one element. The other one is, is you really want uh, 
think, uh, ideas and problems that people can relate to. It isn't just you can tell a story or even a fun story. And there are good movies that are just fun or they're comedic or they're adventuresome. So, you know, I, I enjoy them also. But every once in a while, you get a movie which uh, touches you or, or addresses the kind of thing that you're worried about. So that's what Pixar was trying to do, is to say of all the kinds of films that we do, what are the ones that can touch us? And animation is, it's, you know, it's abstract, it's an exaggeration, um, and it's metaphorical by its nature. So in the case of Up, well, the characters in your head are real, look like real people. They, they have eyes and mouths, and they're sort of like people, but they're not, but they're representative. But you're trying to capture something, explain something, which is hard to explain, which is emotions inside a person, and the fact that the emotions uh, are sometimes in contradiction with each other. And at an abstract level, we know that's true, but it's not obvious to some people that if a child is distressed, that they've got these conflicting emotions. So in order to do that, the research is to talk with uh, child psychiatrists as well as to think about your own children and what happens there, and then to convey that in a story. So that becomes the underlying theme for anything to capture something which is real and do it in a, a way that, that draws people in and gives them something new. It's not talking down to them. It's appealing to what they know and what they don't know and, and their desire to know things that are new to them. Um, I appreciate that. I want to go back to, to mental models real quick. You're now an advisor at an independent game company. That game company, they have a, a, a well-known game called Sky. Are there any mental models that you find applicable to you right now in this new project? Well, I've only met with them a few times. I mean, the, the, the truth is often when I'm, uh, uh, my, my name is used to say that I'm an advisor, but I don't meet with them that much, to be honest. So I don't actually have a, an answer for that one. Um, I, uh, I honestly, more of my advising has to do with other uh, technical companies. How do they think about the technology and the rate of change and what it's being used for uh, and how they might think about long-term implications when we don't really know. The nature of a mental model typically if you think about the ones that people have got is how they're dealing with the unknown and for me that's the more profound question is is how do you both extrapolate from where you are how do you make an estimate about what will take place in the future and accept the fact that you really don't know a lot so you're taking steps towards something that is unknown, which means you're going to completely 
and or, or frequently alter what you think is where you're going. I, now, this the problem is this is a hard concept because a lot of leaders want to have more uh, uh, clarity about where they're going. In fact, a lot of people in the companies want the clarity. The problem is often the clarity is just wrong, in which case the company goes over the cliff. So dealing with the that, that reality of unknown change in a world in which you are judged by immediate returns is a pretty difficult position, and most people have difficulty navigating. Yeah, well, Ed, I want to be mindful of, of, of your time. It's been an absolute honor to be able to uh, have a chance to talk to you. As, as, as I'm sure many people who speak with you, Pixar was a, a very important part of my, my childhood and my understanding of how to tell stories. Uh, thank you for your wisdom and, and your, your time spent with us listeners on Motley Full Money. It's my pleasure to talk with you. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Mary Long. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.